everyone. We're saying goodbye to our youth. Praise God that youth is both plural and singular in English. <laughs> Some of you who are present get that reference. So today, as we turn our hearts towards the scripture and towards the sermon, the message today is titled, When a Right Goes Wrong, When a Right Goes Wrong. And in order to get this message, you kind of have to see the message spelled out, the title spelled out. Um, because when a right goes wrong is actually when a right, R-I-T-E, goes wrong. The scripture that we'll be looking at is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And it's actually talking about religious traditions or religious rights, therefore right, R-I-T-E. And when those things can lead us astray and when we can get off course and we when we can get off base with it. And I do believe scripture has a lot to say to us and Jesus in particular uh, dealt with this issue. Um, so as we enter a season of holiday and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that comes with it, we enter a time where truly it's gonna be marked by a plethora of various traditions, many of them religious traditions. Some of them we've brought over from our childhood and probably been in our families for generations and they mean a lot to us. Um, and I think we can chew on some things in scripture when it comes to some very well-meaning traditions, religious traditions that we have. Um, but we need to always be anchored in the midst of, well, what is it really about? What is the real reason for the season? Because so easily we can get off course um, and the scripture today is going to look at it. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. And how I'd like to open this is yesterday was vet Veterans Day. Um, and I know we've got a few vet veterans here. Uh, so happy Veterans Day, post-Veterans Day to, to those of you who have served. Um, and it's interesting because uh, I am not a veteran personally, but I was raised in the military as military dependent. So, you know, I think of my dad, I think of the folks who I had, my friends who I grew up with because we're all military dependents. And, you know, we moved around the world, you know, every couple of years. Um, and I reflected on, well, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about my upbringing being a military dependent was the fact that I actually got an opportunity to, to uh, sit under a lot of different chaplains um, and go to a lot of different places um, across the globe as my father moved, you know, was stationed from different places to place. And, you know, I was always put in church and, and I was put in church. I was not necessarily going to church on my own. Um, I was sent to church um, and I was sent to church often because you know, initially, I think mom and dad just needed to, you know, get the kids out of the house. And so they had Sunday school that would come pick us up. Um, and so that was, you know, child care. Um, and kids go to church for in Sunday school for a lot of different reasons. Probably the least reason is to get close to God, right? Oh, they have some wonderful snacks at the end of, of service. Oh, they've got, you know, uh, to be real honest, when I was in Japan as a kid, Next to the church that we went to, because the church was not on the military base, the church was uh, in 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 the city. There was a a strip of candy shops, and so uh, I never did this, but my friends did. The parents would give us, you know, a little change to put in in the offering, um, 
and we would make a plan. And so I would be the one typically who would go to the service. Um, but my friends would, you know, we'd put the money together and they'd go and they'd get the candy. Um, and they just had to be back before the bus left to take us back. And it was the most awesome candy. Um, and so the things that I remember from my childhood um, in being sent to church are things like that, right? Um, and, you know, thank God that God is gracious because God still pursues us no matter what those reasons are that we might find ourselves sort of darkening the doorway of any church or, or uh, religious uh, establishment. Uh, God has a way of drawing us in. Um, and God knew that I needed to probably get sent to church early on uh, because I probably wouldn't have gone on my own. But God still was able to work through my, you know, young mind and speak through people there. Um, and I still remember Sunday school teachers. I still remember people who spoke into my life in ways um, that I don't know where they are today, you know, but because of their seeds that they've sown, uh, not just me, but many of my friends um, are, are much more anchored today um, and are in the kingdom as a result of it. And so no doubt many of you who, who sent your kids um, on, to, on the church or forced them to go when they didn't want to go um, and just spoke an encouraging word, they take root, right? They take root. You may not necessarily see it right now, um, but God is, is relentless in his pursuit of all of us. Um, and I think all of us are probably testaments and testimonies of that. Um, so even though things may start off, you know, Oh, this is just things that we do. We don't really have a, have an anchoring in it. Um, God can use it. Uh, so we're going to look at a few things in, in Scripture today, um, because when I think about my upbringing in that military context, um, I'm really, really thankful for, number one, being able to sit under so many different religious traditions under the various chaplains who actually would come in or I would move to, to their particular uh, church or congregation, um, and oftentimes... I didn't know the particular traditions. They were unfamiliar to me, but because I got exposed to so many, basically over the years, I became very comfortable understanding the core, the, the things that were most important in terms of Christianity and religion. And when you'd show up in any particular part of the world, um, I really do feel like I can go into pretty much any church um, and, and resonate with the core. Now, there are some things outside of the core that are still important to us and important to people. Um, and sometimes we may tend to want to major in those minors. And sometimes, you know, it's important to understand and be able to sniff out what the core is and what the minors are, what the things are that, that we may put a lot of stock in. Um, but in all honesty, they, they aren't part of the core. They're not really a part of, of what God really mandates but they are meant to be helpful. And sometimes we can major in those minors. And the problem typically comes in when we put so much stock in those minors, typically things that we've developed, you know, things that we sort of do, uh, things that we hold fast to, but they're really not central or even probably even that important. And we then use those things to either judge, condemn where God hasn't condemned or judged, or put sort of rifts between people um, and use those as reasons for us not being in fellowship with one another. And so these are the things that I, I think the words here are, are really helpful and applicable for, uh, for us even today. And I would just say, imagine if after one of our services, Pastor Johnny, we have our potluck, and as we all get our food and we sit down to eat, he just digs in. No prayer, 
the grace is skipped. And imagine if we've got visitors, you know, who, who may have come from, from other churches to visit and they see something like that happen. Well, that would be interesting because we typically have a tradition of praying and saying grace before meals. And if that doesn't happen, it's noticeable. And I think, well, I would hope maybe we would consider, well, why might we skip a grace when we normally do say grace? And maybe it might cause us to maybe dig a little deeper to say, well, well, is, is this for a reason? Maybe, maybe we've opened our doors to people who might be atheists or agnostic, and it really is a time to just try to gather together and learn. And, and we're sort of trying to hold space for some folks who may be coming from a very different place. And, and we haven't lost the sense that we're thankful and we know that God is the source of our provision, uh, but we're trying to actually extend and, and do the work of the Lord in some new ways. Now, that's a much healthier place to go than probably many of us would go to in a moment like that. Many of us would probably go to, what's wrong with him? Uh, he's forgotten something. We, we'd go to a very different place. And that is some of the same dynamic that we're actually going to see in Mark chapter 7. So as we turn there, I'm just going to start. I'm not going to read the whole thing at front. I'm going to go piece, piece by piece through it a bit. Uh, but keep these ideas in mind in terms of traditions, particularly religious traditions that get held in particular ways that become an obstacle to the work of God and what God's intentions are. Chapter 7 of Mark reads, Now when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him, that is Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, bronze kettles. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So let's pause right there for a moment. And I think it's always helpful to, to maybe take a look at the historical context um, of what this passage is actually referring to. Um, and the beauty of, of archaeology and, and people who do, you know, tremendous work as PhDs in, in some of these areas is they've unearthed and they've sort of written about context that can help us to sort of illuminate what was going on in this time, which is really helpful for our understanding. And so what we're talking about here typically, though, is religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, who, in response to Jesus' ministry, are showing up to these places where Jesus is actually engaging people and doing, doing the work. And what we need to understand about scribes and Pharisees during this time in the ancient world is that they actually served as protectors, religious protectors of the people. Because if we can remember the context of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, Israel, God made some covenants with them. And God basically told them, if you abide by the law, the things that I tell you, then things will go well. And when you are disobedient, things will not go well. And when they actually were disobedient, what would typically happen is they would be taken over and conquered by neighboring peoples, and they would be sent off into exile. And this happened time and time again. And God would always remember his people and bring them back and restore them. And then they would go into disobedience and then they'd get, get taken over and sent into exile. And during these periods of exile, they were obviously then in very different contexts. 
They couldn't necessarily worship God in the way in, in the freedom that they would normally worship God. So they had to come up with how do we try to keep God's commandments in the midst of a context where we may be enslaved or in the midst of a context we, we, we don't have control over all aspects of our life in order to put these things into practice. And so God being faithful still has never forgotten his people. And he brings them to a place where that now they, they are reestablished in the land of Israel, in the Canaan land in Israel. And now you've got Pharisees, scribes, but you've got all these other groups because all of Israel has come back to this place and they've got all these varying traditions and ways of living out the law, the Torah. And these are really important because what they understand is when we fail to put these things into practice properly, we know from our history, this is what then causes us to then be put into exile. Other people come in and take over. And this particularly was a time when the Romans were actually occupiers. So the Romans were actually in control there in the land. So whenever people who would come through with a message and would gather, uh, would, would attract a large following, the Pharisees and different groups would actually show up to try to evaluate, is this person leading us astray? Are they leading the people astray? And this could be a problem. Or are these people in line with what we understand and grapple with in terms of what it means to actually follow God's laws. Part of the challenge then in this time was there are a lot of different perspectives on that. Jesus comes in and adds yet one more perspective. He's not in lockstep with anybody in particular. Sometimes, you know, he may align in, with certain groups or what have you, but, but Jesus is really adding a different perspective. And so as the Pharisees and the scribes hear what Jesus is actually preaching and saying, because it doesn't align with what they understand, now they're confronted with what do we do with this? And rather than sort of acknowledge or sort of recognize Jesus for who Jesus truly is, which is God, which is the word of God. And if anybody would know the law and, and the rightly divided word, it's, it's, in person right before them if they just listen and have ears that would be open. But instead, Jesus is saying some things that seems like it conflicts with their understandings in ways. And so rather than lean in and engage him, they draw some conclusions that are really, really problematic. They conclude a lot of times that Jesus is casting out devils by the power of the devil himself. They conclude that Jesus is actually breaking the law, not upholding the law. And if we look a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 3, chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, go read that sometime at the end of chapter 2. If you recall the story where Jesus and his disciples are, are walking through a field and it happens to be the Sabbath and the disciples are hungry. And what do the disciples do as they're walking through a, a field with grain in it and they happen to be hungry? Maybe the same thing we might do. Oh, let's pick some of this grain and we can eat it as we're hungry because we're hungry. And of course, this is what the disciples do. And the Pharisees take notice of that because for the Pharisees, it's the Sabbath. No work should be done on the Sabbath. And for the Pharisees, they have defined work to be anything. Anything where there's effort, the plucking of grain is work to them. 
and they essentially have, have sort of set a fence around a commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath in such a way that they really take it too far. When I say too far, too far in the sense that if they were to really have their way, the disciples would not actually eat on the Sabbath. They would just, I guess, be hungry on the Sabbath. And so they call Jesus out on this. And they say, hey, why is it that, that your disciples break the law in their speaking of the Sabbath? And Jesus then has to respond to them um, in a way that actually educates them in terms of, well, I don't know that you actually understand what the Sabbath is. And he give them, gives them a reference of, of David and, and his men when they were hungry and they went into the tabernacle and they actually ate the bread of presence, which, you know, it's not lawful to eat the bread of presence, you know, but yet David did it and he gave some to his companions. Um, and Jesus references that. Um, and then right after that, Jesus goes to a place and there's a man with a withered hand and the Pharisees are there and they already have made up their mind because they're there to see, is he going to heal this person? And it's the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus says, well, is it easier to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus heals the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And at that point, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they start to conspire to plot against Jesus, how they might destroy him. They, they take a conclusion to a place that is really, really problematic. But Jesus understands some things that, that brings the right perspective in the midst of how we may hold traditions and things that, that initially can be well-meaning, uh, but when we put too much on it and we elevate it above the actual word of God, can become problematic. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, that is actually talking about the Ten Commandments. In particular, the Sabbath. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And if we look at uh, probably verse 12. Maybe 12 through 15. What, what does scripture, what does the word actually say about Sabbath? Verse 12, it says, and this is part of the Ten Commandments, observe the Sabbath day. This is God giving the commandments through Moses. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your town so that you may so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. And here is the reason for the Sabbath that Jesus then talks about with the Pharisees. Verse 15, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. If the Pharisees actually understood what Jesus was trying to get them to see, which is the Sabbath day, 
actually comes out of a, a spirit of God's grace when he actually brought his people out of slavery, suffering, bondage, pain. The, the whole spirit and gift of Sabbath comes out of the fact that God frees us from our suffering, our pain, our hunger, all the things that beset us. That is what the Sabbath is there to actually remember, for us to see that it is the spirit and grace and gift of God that frees us from our suffering. That is a good thing. Absolutely remembers, remember the Sabbath. And Jesus' point is, when you then take the Sabbath principle and you codify it in such a way, you make it such, such a, uh, an issue, and then wield it in a way where people who are hungry cannot actually eat. Not only are they hungry, but the food is right there in front of them. And because it's the Sabbath, they're not supposed to touch it. And so they sit in the hunger and that hunger is probably exacerbated because they see the food that goes against the spirit, the, the very spirit out of which the Sabbath was arisen. Jesus also spoke to the Pharisees in, at times talking about, well, you know, you know that there's this debate that, you know, if your ox falls into the pit on the Sabbath, do you get it out or do you leave it in because it's the Sabbath? Of course you get it out. You don't lose life and, and cause suffering on this. It's, it's for freedom. It's for release. That is the spirit out of which God's grace comes, and that is the spirit out of which God gives people the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying, hey, remember, this is what God's principle is. It is about freedom and grace, and therefore that is what the Sabbath is supposed to represent. Hold that. But people are important. And when people are in suffering, we must understand that it is still in the spirit of Sabbath to relieve the suffering. That is the connection that Jesus is trying to get them to see. This is God's principle, relief of suffering. That is what Sabbath is supposed to represent. And the Pharisees actually were using it in a way that would exacerbate people in their hunger, in their suffering, and what have you. And not only would they exacerbate it, but then they were coming along with that same idea and principle and saying, because you are now breaking the Sabbath according to how we've defined it, we are judging and condemning you. You see the path that they go down with that, the exact opposite direction of the intention. This is the same thing that we're seeing in Mark 7, then, because in Mark 7, a different group of Pharisees and scribes show up, and they're listening to Jesus, and they notice that while they're there listening to Jesus, some of Jesus' disciples, some of them, actually are eating, and they haven't wash their hands. Now, you may think, I don't even notice that. Okay, we're not talking about normal hand washing here. This is, this is, this is a very particular ritual that, that even exists today amongst um, some folks in Judaism. And, and this ritual was quite noticeable. Basically what it was, um, and, and it's helpful to understand a bit of the context, because oftentimes our religious rites and rituals, they, they start from a good place, very well-meaning. If we look back in Exodus chapter 30, what we find um, is God actually instituting what the priests have to do 
in order to purify themselves, in order to serve before him, particularly at a time when the sacrifices are being made. And when we talk about that Old Testament sacrificial system, just, just hold this in mind. Sacrifices have a lot to do with food. Sacrifices have a lot to do with food. Okay, when we go into Thanksgiving time, remember, food has a lot to do with worship. It, it's a good space for those things to come together. So, so from that framework, what God tells the priest is, hey, when you bring the food, the sacrifices to my table, you have to wash in a particular way because you have to actually purify yourself so that there's no impurity, there's no defilement, so that you can serve before me without a problem. And so people then, the rest of, of Israel at that point, over time, a tradition arose that, well, we have meals in our own home. We want to be close to God and we want to invite and be mindful of God's presence, God's provision. And so wouldn't it be a good thing to just also keep that same mindset? Hey, God, we invite you into our very homes. And, and if God is here present with us at our table, then we have to do something to make sure that we're not defiled. So the food has to not be defiled. The food has to be the right food. And we can't be defiled. And so we look at those Old Testament ordinances and we say, okay, so we're going to go through a ritual type of washing. And when you look at the Greek in the, in the New Testament, for those of you who sort of like to take that deep dive, you'll find particular words in Greek that are used to describe what Jesus was talking about here. And, and you'll find this word pugme in the Greek. And pugme in the Greek, people have always struggled with this over the years to figure out how do you translate this into this context? And you'll never really find it translated the same in any particular version. But when you actually ask Jews in Israel who are Messianic Jews what they're talking about because they're familiar with the traditions, right? They're talking about pugme is actually like a fist. So it's, it's like a washing of the fist, or you're doing something with the fist. Well, that's not how you wash a hand to get rid of germs, right? Washing of a fist is, is something that they would do in a ritual form. In other words, they would take a certain amount of water, in particular, enough water to fill an eggshell and a half. That's very particular. And they would pour it over a closed hand. And then they would pour it over the other closed hand. That's not to get rid of germs. They didn't have the concept of germs back then. That was a ritual because God was supposed to then take the impurities and the uncleanness and the defilement of the person away at that point. It wasn't the person washing their hands to get rid of it. It was God actually coming in to do it. And this was symbolic. It was a symbolic gesture. Very well-meaning. Makes a lot of sense. It, it actually is coming from a good place. But then over time, they've taken it to a, such a level of tradition that was adopted by most people. And the Pharisees were at the forefront of this tradition. And that, that tradition became part of what they would call their oral law. There are sort of things that you need to do that weren't necessarily written down at that time. They would write it down later. But it, but it carried as much or maybe even more weight than the things that were written down. And once they crossed into that realm, that's when they would get into trouble. Once they cross into it had as much weight or more weight than the actual word of God, that's when they would get into trouble. And that is what we're actually seeing here because basically it became very observable to the Pharisees and to everybody when somebody is eating and they haven't been done the ritual. It's very, very apparent. 
very apparent. And of course, the Pharisees take it to, well, first of all, they already came with a particular judgment and bent in mind, because we have to look at the earlier chapters. They're already there to actually judge and condemn Jesus. So they're looking for reasons to actually discredit Jesus. And so when Jesus' disciples, some of them do not abide by their traditions, the traditions of the elders, they use that then to judge and condemn. So the answer to the question, one of the answers to the question, you know, when, when does a right go wrong? I think one of the answers is, well, when we use it to judge and condemn in places where God hasn't judged and condemned, when we use it to judge and condemn in places where God hasn't judged and condemned, this is what Jesus is actually then responding to. Because what we actually see then is Jesus actually defends his disciples. And I pause for a moment because I think we normally read these scriptures and, and it's easy to sort of gloss over some things. It caused me to think, what kind of people are these disciples that they know the tradition and the custom? It comes from a good place. Most people are doing it and they're not doing it. Not all the disciples, just a, just some of them. Um, and I'm going to go down a little bit of a Rick path here on this. So just bear with me. I can be wrong on this. There are some people who I think can sniff out when traditions and things are just rote and don't have a whole lot of meaning and purpose. There are some people, I think, because of their experiences coming up in churches that they may have been a part of or with people who claim to be religious, and, and they see the rituals, they see the things that they do, but they also see, well, they're, they're not really meaning what they're doing. As a matter of fact, it's pretty hollow and empty. And some people choose to not engage those things because they see that people do it in a way that's actually not connected to anything significant. And, and I'm not saying that these disciples would be um, folks who then would leave the congregation and leave the church. No, they clearly they're following Jesus. They're disciples, but they're seeking something deeper. They're seeking something authentic, something connected with things that are real in a spiritual sense. And so I think it's helpful to understand that these are not disciples who are barbarians. These are not people who are sitting there with dirt caked under their fingernails, right? These are normal people. And they are actually then not engaging in a custom or a tradition knowingly that many Jews actually follow for various reasons. And Jesus comes to their defense in these ways. And Jesus says some things that are very, very interesting um, in terms of where Jesus goes next in scripture. And so I think we can learn a lot from, from the reasons as to why some of these folks might do what they do um, based on some things that Jesus is saying. So when we pick up where we left off, verse six in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said to them, that is the Pharisees who are now accusing, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. Jesus goes on to say, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, 
and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die. But you say that if anyone tells father or mother, whatever support you might have have had, whatever you whatever support you might have had from me is Corban, that is an offering to God, then you no longer permit doing anything for a father or a mother, thus making void the word of God through your tradition that you have handed on, and you do many things like this. Jesus is saying very, very clearly, when you take traditions, things that are meant to be well-meaning, and you then elevate them to a place above the word so that it actually starts to get in the way of the work of God, the things that God would actually have you do and how God would have you live out in terms of God's principles, and, and they get in the way and you justify not engaging in how God would actually have you engage one another not engaging God in how you would actually have, God would actually have you engage God based on your traditions. That's a problem. That's a problem. In what ways might we get hung up on these things today? So I'm going to go down a little bit of a dangerous path here for us. And I'm not saying that we got to do anything different, but I am saying, okay, but if if we find that, okay, as we think about these things, God is actually tugging on us in particular ways to get anchored or, or to address some things or, or to lean into him a bit more, then I would say, well, let the shoe fit because I was definitely challenging some of these things. If you consider things that God has actually commanded, like, hey, baptism, be baptized, or communion. Jesus said, hey, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. These are commands that we find in scripture. These are things that we should do as a congregation. These are things that are done all across Christendom, all around the world. But you know, God didn't necessarily say you have to be a pastor to actually perform these things. Right? We get into some really interesting dynamics in terms of how we codify these things, how we put these things into practice. I was at a funeral yesterday um, and, you know, had my family with me. And the funeral was at a... Uh, church that I used to go to when I first moved to California. Um, and the church is, uh, it's uh, AME, African-American, uh, African-American Episcopal. It's, it's a, uh, let me explain it this way. <laughs> In black religious denominations, this is high church. In black religious denominations, this is high church. I then went from that church to Church of God in Christ, which is another main denomination amongst Black American Christians, um, and it's not considered so high church. Okay. So they have a lot less rules, right? A lot less structure. They still have structure, okay, but not like the high church structure. And that second church, which had less structure, is the church that when Rochelle was born, I took her to, we took her to uh, before we came here. And what's interesting is while we're sitting in the funeral, um, you know, I'm like, oh, I wonder if Rochelle is noticing these things. And so afterwards uh, I was talking with her, hey, Rochelle, did you, did you see that when people got up to speak at the funeral and say things, there were some people who spoke from the pulpit and there were some people who spoke from the lectern that was on the ground. And do you know why that happened, right? Do you know why that is? 
Um, there's some denominations that that pulpit is a sacred place in space. And so that's reserved for people who are ordained. And if you're not ordained, then you cannot actually go into that pulpit and say anything. And so they've got this other place for those folks who are not ordained to actually be able to address a congregation. And that's what that's about. Um, and that's very different from the, the other church that I went to where it didn't matter who you were. If you had something to say, you got up behind the lectern in the pulpit and you said it, right? And the pastor was fine with that. These are traditions. Some of these traditions can become wedges and chase people away. Some of us are allergic to hierarchy right? for various reasons, right? Some of us understand that they've been burned by that hierarchy because that hierarchy tends to look a certain way. And they've been on the receiving end of the negative ends of that. And those things can then become obstacles into what God may be trying to do with somebody because they get hung up on some things that really aren't in the scripture and they're not that important. And they're being used in a way to establish a system that actually some people might actually take offense to. And so these are the things that, that Jesus is actually dealing with here. Because when Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees are actually holding ideas like Corbin, which is to say that, hey, we know that God is wanting us to actually take care of each other and, and to actually be responsible for our family members. You know, those parents who raised you and took care of you when you were little, at some point they get to a point where they may actually need your help when you're grown. And that's not the time to abandon them. That's the time to actually step in and take care of your family. And somehow this tradition has come in where it says, well, instead of giving some of the resources there, I can actually say, no, I've reserved these resources for God. And so when I pass on, these are going to go to the church, quote unquote. And therefore, I can't give it over to you, mom and dad, because this is going to go to the church. And all the while, while I'm alive, they get to stay in my house. You, you, you see how that gets used, right? So people are getting outside of responsibilities to family members by declaring this Corbin and they're sort of misusing it in a way where Jesus calls them out on it. It's like that is totally antithetical to the spirit of God. And we're using something from a religious standpoint to do something the exact opposite. But in this group of uh, Pharisees, it's even worse than the first group because the first group of Pharisees were at least evaluating or trying to evaluate Jesus on the basis of what is actually in the word, what is actually in the Torah. This group comes up with something that is not in the Torah at all. You know that there is not hand washing for the common populace in the scriptures. It's not in there for the priest, but, but for everybody, that, that's not a scriptural thing. You're not going to find that in the Torah. What you will find is there is a list of what is acceptable for God's altar, what is acceptable for God's people to eat. These are the, this is the food list. These are the clean animals. And here are the things that are not to be food. And those are all the things that we eat, right? All the things that people who are not Jewish eat. And that's all you'll find in scripture. But is one thing good? Is one thing bad? No, that's something that we put in it. What, what, what when we look at scripture, when we look at the, the law, I think it's really important to, to understand these things that Jesus is actually upholding the law when he's dealing with the Pharisees. And so often we conclude that somehow Jesus is doing away with the law. Jesus is always going back to the Torah to uphold it in ways that extend it even further. And what Jesus is actually doing in this passage is he's saying he's about to go into, into 
what actual defilement is. He's about to actually give them a primer on actually what the Old Testament and what, what the Torah is actually telling you is it's just giving you some very concrete things that are talking to a real deep spiritual principle when it comes to what defiles a person. And so then he actually goes into explaining this. In verse 14, he called the crowd again and said to them, so now he's talking to the crowd, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about the parable. So apparently this landed on the disciples in such a way where they had some questions. He said to them, the disciples, that is, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart, but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You have to understand the Old Testament law to get that. Because the Old Testament law talks repeatedly about here's what actually causes defilement and it typically is talking about bodily discharges blood feces the things that will come out of a body are the things that actually defile what is god's principle what is god trying to convey to his people year after year millennium after millennium of, of putting these things into practice well, Jesus pulls it out then. This is the principle that God is saying. It is not what actually goes into the body that is the defilement. It is the stuff that comes out. So what are the things that come out? Yes, there's the bodily stuff that comes out, but Jesus is always going to elevate things. He's going to take it to a place where it's like, oh, wow, we need the grace of God to do this because Jesus is saying, well, it's your intentions. They come outside. They come out of you. It's the things that you say. They come out of you. It's the actions that you do, how you show up with one another. Those are the things that are going to tell us what's going on on the inside and if there's defilement there. The things that you take in, those aren't those aren't the problem. That's not that's not where the focus should be. It is on understanding that what comes out of the person, that's more of an indicator of where the heart actually is. And so Jesus is always trying to engage and 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 offer correction. And he's not necessarily talking to the Pharisees now. He's actually talking to people who have basically bought into a way of thinking and a tradition that has gotten them off course. And they're focused so much on, well, we need to make sure that the externals, the things that we take in, are purified, missing the fact that that has nothing to do with it. It's what comes out. You have to make sure that you're engaged in such a way that what is coming out of you manifests the fruit of the Spirit. The love, the patience, the peace, all the things that then New Testament is going to tell us about and lay out. That is what is probably the thing that you need to pay more attention to. If we then come back to the question, what are the things that, what are the, what are the 
rights, how do the rights go wrong? Rights, R-I-T-E-S. Initially, we said, yeah, when, when we actually use it to judge and condemn people where God is not judging and condemning them. But I would also offer in terms of what Jesus is talking about here, also where the rights go wrong is when we actually engage in them, thinking that we're good with God, but in actuality, our hearts are elsewhere. Doing things like <laughs> I, I struggle to say it. Doing things like coming to church. Now, that's not us, right? Okay. And I'm not saying don't go to church, but I'm saying, do you know that there are a lot of us, a lot of people who go to church for some very different reasons? One of the things that I learned when I was going through my, my graduate program is I did research comparing congregations in different parts of the country. And I found that in the Bible Belt, in the South, the Southern states of the US, where religious attendance is very high, you would think that would be good. But their actual intrinsic engagement, their actual connection to God that they report is actually quite low. The attendance is high, but the engagement is low. And I compared them to people in Southern California. And you would think, well, Southern California doesn't have a Bible Belt culture at all, right? So you would think, well, the South is going to beat them all day, every day. No, because even though the attendance at church is not as high in Southern California as it is in the Bible Belt states, but when you go to church in Southern California, you go for a real reason, because you could, you could be a hundred different other places. People who go to church in Southern California typically go to church because they're connected to God, because they could be elsewhere. People who go to church in the Bible Belt go to church for all sorts of reasons because that is the thing to do. That's the culture. But you know what? If I want to make points with my boss, I got to show up and my boss is at church, so he needs to see my face. That's what that is about. Or if I don't go to church, people are going to think something's wrong with me because everybody's in church. That's what that's about. And that is hollow. That is not the reason that that is not the reason to actually be there. And these are some of the differences that that we that we could see just in the work that I was doing. And one of the dangers in terms of how rights can go wrong then is, yes, when we engage in things that are hollow, empty, and our hearts are far from it, and we think that by showing up and doing those actions, somehow we are good with God. And God might have something to say about that at some point. And so these are the things that I think are really important for us to grapple with. I'll give you one more, and this is where this is the one that I paused to to throw out there. We got some really interesting traditions that mean a lot to us. But if you ever read Jeremiah chapter ten, verses one through five, I'm not going to read that one. But if you ever read that, especially as we're coming up on the December time frame, chew on that for a moment. Because that's talking about something that we all typically do, which if we're not anchored, yeah, it's going to be a problem. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Um, and I'll give you a hint. You put these things up in your house in December and you decorate them with lights and bulbs. Okay? And where that comes from 
and how it's sort of, now I know that in Jeremiah chapter 10, they're not specifically talking about that, but my goodness, a different time, but my goodness, the same thing. A different time, but the same thing. And, and what God has to say about his people as they engage in practices that can really lead them astray. I got this off of um, a really interesting website. If you if you ever want to just, you know, we're we're immersed in in our culture, and, and those of us who are in the church, we're sort of immersed in our our religious traditions. If you ever want to get a real sense for what this looks like from the outside, the great thing about the internet is you can find uh, blogs that agnostics and atheists get together and talk about us on. Fascinating, fascinating. Because they're naming some stuff, and I'm like, yeah, I bet that does look pretty strange and odd and weird. Um, and this is off of one of those blogs. And, and this particular person knew scripture, and he threw scripture out there in a way where, like, this is the inconsistency of people who are quote unquote Christians because their scripture says this, but here's what they do. And I'm like, wow. Um, well, he he's he may still be off in some ways, but at least he's he's using scripture to evaluate a situation, right? He's coming to some different conclusions, but he's using scripture to evaluate some situations, um, which I think is Jesus's point, which I think is Jesus's point. We kind of have to know, here's the scriptures. Here's God's principles that we, that we get from the scripture. And that is to be the lens that we then use by which we evaluate and wrestle with the things that come at us each and every day. One of the things that I would always say to, to uh, college students as they're getting ready to go off to college, um, it's really important to stay anchored and grounded in the word because what you're about to encounter for the next four or five years in a college setting um, is a lot of information. And a lot of that information is good information. I, I think where Christians maybe sort of miss the mark sometimes is we, we think that somehow that God is not providing common grace and using people who just have brains to study things and they can find out really good things that is important to understand and know and put into practice. That absolutely is what God has always been doing. There's, there's common grace and God gives everybody a brain. Use it. Use it. Don't, don't shut off your brain, right? Use it. But a lot of these areas of study, mine included, I'm a psychologist, can come at things in such a way that if you don't know scripture, you can really be led down a different path. And so oftentimes, you know, what you'll hear about in, in psychology and, and maybe even ideas in other parts, in other disciplines is that, you know, when it comes down to it, people are basically good. People, are, if, if you just take away all the stuff, people have a good heart and they're just going to do the right thing. That just doesn't seem to square with what scripture is saying. Okay. Scripture is talking about actually people have this corrupted sin nature, right? And that is the whole point of why we need God and Jesus to actually help us with that. We need to be new creations in ways that we can then participate in that relationship that we were meant to participate with God and with each other. And, and those are fundamentally different things. And it doesn't mean that, that, the world doesn't have some nuggets that we can put into practice that are actually good, that would be helpful. And it doesn't mean that the world can doesn't have nuggets that we can use to shed light even on, on how we grapple with and understand Scripture. It does. But when push comes to shove, we do have to keep the lens of Scripture as our primary lens by which we navigate. 
And so these are the things that I would just say as we as we are looking into this season of Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks and that season that we claim Jesus is the reason for, but yet Jesus wasn't born in December. <laughs> and it's not in scripture anywhere where we got to celebrate this, um, but we hold it so strongly. The point is to not explode those things. The point is to know, be anchored, understand that if Jesus is the reason for the season, make that the reason for the season. As we look into a Thanksgiving season, Thanksgiving, God is our provision. If God is our provision, how do we actually engage and anchor ourselves in the midst of the bustle? And you understand what that bustle is, right? When you go to the store, before Thanksgiving, it's not a leisurely stroll. There's bustle. I've seen fights over ham hocks for Thanksgiving. How do we pause in the midst of that, knowing that in a world of food insecurity, God has blessed us with provision. People have, farmers have put in work. <laughs> Store people have put in work. We have put in work, yes, and we can actually get what we need and and god is the provider god is the source of that provision so as we as we run up and down the aisle looking for that last this and, and that last that how do we pause breathe anchor ourselves not get caught up in the bustle and truly make what could be a good tradition of thanksgiving recognizing god is our provision something that is meaningful and not even i've even heard one lady she was being funny but i'm like that's a great idea she says, I pause in the store and this ask God to bless the basket of food. And that's why I don't pray before I eat the meal, because I blessed it in the store. That's what she was actually saying. But I'm like, that's a great idea, just in terms of in the midst of your most busy time fighting the crowds, pause. Let's recognize that God is the source of this provision. And these are just tangible ways that we can actually anchor ourselves in, in truly the spirit of, of what scripture is, where God is our provider, God is our provision. How can we do that in a season where even in the midst of a bunch of divisions, people on one side of the spectrum versus where we are on the other side of the spectrum, how can we show love and be a neighbor to people who would be, quote, the ops, the enemy, somebody on the other side? That's in keeping with the spirit of God in terms of the godly principle that we draw from scripture, the commandments that we have in the New Testament. This is a season that if we can go into it, and not practice traditions hollowly, thinking that by doing it, that we're still good, but use them to actually truly anchor ourselves into what is this really about? And how do we reinforce the fact that we're, we should be in touch with God and God's grace and goodness, and then flow from that space? That's a good use of a season. That's a good use of a, of a Thanksgiving season and a Christmas season. So I come back to this in closing though. I think we are, as a congregation, blessed in some ways. I, our, our pastor tells his uh, testimony of uh, he came to, to a deep relationship in Christ when he was in the military. I know something about that military context. You're usually worshiping with people who aren't from your religious tradition, which means you might be uncomfortable with some things because they're not your things. And you might be exposed to some other things that 
maybe you're uncomfortable with. But you have to then do the work and get comfortable and identify what is the core. What is the core? What, what is God's intent? What is in scripture? What are the things that truly are the majors because we find them in scripture? These are the things that it is very helpful to be able to anchor ourselves in. And I think as a congregation with our particular pastor, who that's that's the that's sort of the, the foundation out of which his faith was birthed. And I look at even myself and I'm like, that's that's the foundation out of which sort of my faith has sort of been germinated. And to this day, I feel like I can go in any part of the world and, and go, walk into a church and be OK, even if that church is wildly different from maybe what I'm accustomed to, because I can sniff the core. You can find the principles in the word there, even if the trappings might be very different. So when we come back to that prayer that I referenced earlier, that Jesus prayed right before he went to the cross to the Father, that God would make us one. And because of that unity, that is what the world will see. And that will be the testimony that God actually sent Jesus and Jesus is the son of God. That's how powerful that is. So in a time where traditions of various sorts might actually cause us to miss one another, miss God. Let us be intentional about digging deep, pausing, engaging God in the midst of it all. Let the rights be right. Don't let them become the wrongs. And let us come through a season together to God be the glory on the other side. Amen. Amen. Right on time. My family's back there to say, Rick, it's 12 o'clock. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Father, for your graciousness, Lord, and the things that you have given us through your word, the things that you have sown in our hearts, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you've given us not just you, not just Christ, but you've given us each other. Let us make the most of this day let us make the most of this season, Lord, by putting into practice those scriptures, those principles, Lord, that cause us to dig deep, Lord. And as we put these things into practice, as we grapple with them, Lord, help us to not be led astray. Because the fruit of being able to do this well by your grace, by your empowerment, Lord, is a unity, Lord, that the world will see that is not replicated anyplace else. And by that unity, Lord, the world will know that there is something about our God, something about you to take note of and how you draw the world and how you draw various people based on how you show up in your people. Help us to be your representatives. Help us to be neighbors. Help us to be brothers and sisters. Help us to be more Christ-like. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.